I do wake up at night, but I rarely have trouble going back to sleep. I keep the lights really dim and low. I will try to go back to some beautiful dream I've had that I can remember. And if I can remember a beautiful dream, um, it will often just sort of lull me back into sleep. Hello, I'm Arianna Huffington. I'm delighted to welcome you to a special series of the Thrive Global podcast presented by Audible. In these four episodes, I'll be talking to four remarkable women about how they prioritize sleep in their lives and what helps them thrive. Sleep is always essential to every aspect of our well-being, but in extraordinary times of anxiety, stress, and uncertainty, Getting the sleep we need is more important than never. Sleep is truly the foundation of both a strong immune system and our mental resilience, the very things we need to navigate this pandemic and the uncertainty of the year ahead. My guest today is Melinda Gates, philanthropist, businesswoman, global advocate for women and girls, and the co-founder of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She's also the founder of Pivotal Ventures, a startup accelerator with a community-building mindset. And she wrote a best-selling book that's now my favorite gift to give to people. It's called The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World. We talked about deep sleep, human connection, and the things that have deepened her. Oh, well, first, thanks for having me, Ariana. This is lovely to do. I think through my travels, meeting other people and particularly other women who you think they might be different than we are because of their circumstances in life, and it has deepened me so much to have these conversations with women around the world because I've come to learn how similar we actually are as human beings, no matter where we live. Before we go any further, I want to say that I absolutely loved your book. It's now one of my favorites. So let's start at the beginning. Okay. uh, Because there's um, such a kind of spiritual thread Mm -hmm. that runs through your book. You were born Catholic, Mm -hmm. but your spirituality has changed and evolved through the years while still uh, feeling really strongly about what faith in action means. Mm, Definitely. Yes, I was uh, raised Catholic. I went uh, to Catholic K through 12 school. And in particular, my parents sent uh, my sister and I, there are two girls in our family and then a bit of a gap and then two boys. And they sent my my sister and I to an all-girls Catholic high school because they believed that that religious upbringing was incredibly important. And I don't think I understood how important it was, or I know I didn't at the time, But we had a set of liberal Ursuline nuns who really allowed us to question our faith and also sent us out in the community to work. I worked at a local public school two miles down the road from my high school, and they taught us what faith in action means and that one person can literally change another person's life, either by a connection or an action or something you do or a dollar you help spend with that person. Um, And so I have those social justice roots because of that upbringing. And also you have the the understanding of centering prayer, Mm. which for me is one of the most beautiful um, 
precepts. It's really very connected to what today we call meditation. Um, But it's also, for me, very connected to generally how we recharge, Mm. how we care for ourselves. In my own life, that starts with sleep. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) It begins there. (laughs) So how did you sleep last night? Uh, Not as well as I would have liked because we're here in New York. And I think just the buzz of the city, I don't tend to sleep as well. Um, But what that means is that I will meditate more today than I would otherwise. I certainly try to meditate a little bit for sure every day. But it means that I need to take any break that I have, even being driven across the city in a car, and put in my little earbuds and do a little five or ten minute meditation. It helps recenter me, um, helps me gather my energy. And it's now validated by modern science that it takes very little time, often as little as 60 to 90 seconds, mm. to course correct from stress mm. and fatigue and burnout. And um, so there's so much wisdom in these traditions. Definitely. That now you're kind of rediscovering and talking about. I'm rediscovering it for myself, and I'm putting it into practice. And I've, I'm talking about it more. I've been talking with my children about it in our family life for quite some time now. Both sleep. They will tell you that ever since they've been one year old, they remember mom talking about sleep. Like, they're, I'm always about sleep. But this piece of quieting and stilling is something we talk about probably more in the last eight years Um, And I'm talking about it more in the world because I think sometimes people think it's daunting to meditate. And and in fact, it's not at all. You can start with a simple walking meditation in your home or in the park. You know, even doing three minutes a day, five minutes Mm -hmm. a day, you just have to start. And once you start, those little drops just build on themselves day after day after day. Yes, at Thrive, we call them micro steps, Mm -hmm. too small to fail. Perfect. So um, we say if you want to start with one minute in the morning, even Mm -hmm. if you take 60 seconds before you go to your phone, Mm -hmm. to just uh, remember what you're grateful for, set your intention for the day, take some deep breaths, whatever you want to do, even that one minute is a reminder that we are more than our to-do list Mm -hmm. and what's coming down the pike through emails and texts. And I think even that that taking time for gratitude. I've learned that even if I have something really, really difficult going on in my day, maybe it's some emotions with somebody that have been charged up, maybe it's a work issue that feels more stressful than I thought it would, is I actually have learned to be grateful for the hardship Mm. so that you're not resisting against it and saying, oh my gosh, I didn't expect this today. You say, okay, I don't know why, but I'm glad this is here, and maybe it will help me learn something about myself, or maybe it will help me work through something later. And so then you also don't resist. And um, so, yes, I think gratitude and quiet and sleep are just fundamental to our overall well-beings. So you've said something which um, I have now laminated, Mm which is working on ourselves while working for others is the inner and outer work. Mm. I think this is incredibly profound and something our culture so desperately needs because often, you know, the problems that um, we are dealing with are so overwhelming, it's easy to forget that we also are here on this earth because we are working on ourselves. 
Absolutely. We're here, and we're here in the blink of an eye in the history and the arc of time. And so if we can remember that and say, while, I'm, while we're on earth and we're lucky to be alive, what is it I want to do inside my family life, in my community, or to help repair the world? And I think if we can keep that focus, and it does often mean working on ourselves. It sometimes means undoing things you learned that weren't healthy habits or something that happened to you in your past. Um, and you have to learn even to let go of those things so you can grow and take in new information. So when you are um, worrying about some of the mm. macro problems, as mm -hmm. you said it, and you said sometimes um, that keeps you up at night, mm -hmm. how do you overcome that? I try to um, remember also where I've seen hope in the world. You know, one woman whom I've met or a man who tells me about their life and how, you know, maybe a new seed that they've gotten, they've raised a bit more corn, let's say, on their farm that fall and been able to feed their kids and put one or two of them in school. So when the, when the problems look enormous and daunting, I go back down to the really small. Well, where did I see something working? Mm. How might we scale that up? Um, if I really get stuck in my brain, um, which can happen, particularly if I'm tired, particularly on an international trip, because maybe I'm dealing with jet lag, I can reach out to a friend. So I can do that using, you know, texting. If it's If I'm at home, I can call them. If I'm home in Seattle, I'll go for a walk uh, with a friend, or I'll just literally go out in my garden and try and focus on something in the here and now, a beautiful flower, a bee that's there. And that just seems to help re-calm and recenter me. And, and at night, <clears throat> if you wake up and it's harder to go back to sleep, do you have any tips and techniques you can give us or rituals that help? Um, so, you know, it's interesting. I do wake up at night, but I rarely have trouble going back to sleep. I keep the lights really dim and low. I will try to go back to some beautiful dream I've had that I can remember. Mm. And if I can remember a beautiful dream, um, it will often just sort of lull me back into sleep. Yeah. And, um, uh, do you sleep with your phone? Never. <laughs> no. And my, my three kids would tell you that ever since they've been young and gotten phones, I have been adamant that those phones are not in their rooms at night because I see the difference it makes for myself. So my, my phone is absolutely outside of my room. Our kids' phones are outside of the room. Bill's phone is outside of his room, recharging. Look, you can always go to that the next morning. And yes. I never look at it at night either. If I've gone to bed and then I get up in the middle of the night, I do not go to my phone. And it just, you need to learn these healthy habits because the technology so quickly sucks us in, right? And that, I will say for myself, I notice that, you know, especially if I'm jet lagged and tired, I'm more likely to reach to my yes. phone. And that's when I need to especially put it aside because reading all the news or reading all the social media stuff, it actually makes me more uh, charged up instead of more calm. And so how are you dealing with burnout within the foundation? Mm. Because this is a problem everywhere. And the more concerned you are mm. about all the major problems in the world, the more I've talked to people who say, you know, if I sleep, you know, I have less time to work on um, solving poverty or whatever issue they're working on. Yeah. We talk about this often inside the foundation. Um, we talk about a couple of things. One is showing up with your whole self to work. I think people feel better 
if they can talk about their personal lives at work. It doesn't mean you go into a meeting and you cry all the time, but you can talk about your family life and the real issues and the kids or whatever you're struggling with, and you can do the work. So we talk about showing up with our whole selves to work, and we've been doing more of a speaker series where both we, the management of the foundation, and the individuals um, do some storytelling, five-minute storytelling about their true background and their true life and something maybe they've struggled with and how they got here. So we're more authentic selves at work, and we talk more about this balance and taking some time and some time for quiet. And you've taken those same principles throughout the book in being more um, open about your own personal Mm. life and your relationship with Bill, which I thought was wonderful and how it has grown through the years and what you've learned. And I love the fact that you had such a great role model in your dad, who you said showed you how a man can nurture his marriage. Mm. So tell us some of the things um, that have changed in your relationship with Bill. I, I love the fact that when he first asked you out, he told you two weeks from this Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he asked me after I think two weeks from a Friday night, and I teasingly <laughs> said to him, well, that's not spontaneous enough for me. I don't even know my calendar, you know, a, a, two days from now. Call me closer to the date. And it's become our little funny mantra between us because he is always the one looking out at our long-term calendar, and I'm always the one trying to pull in. We we need to have plans. We do have many, many plans long-term, but I'm always pulling him back saying, let's have some more spontaneity. Let's not schedule some time. So it's this kind of yin and yang in life that's been nice. And and also in the documentary, I just watched the Davis mm-hmm. Guggenheim documentary, Inside Bill's Brain, and I loved one thing you said which is that when Bill stills himself, he can pull ideas together that other people can't see. And for me, that was a very important um, insight Mm. because it's so true of all of us Mm -hmm. that when we still ourselves, that's when we have our best ideas. How do you see that in your own life? Yeah, when I'm quiet and stilled... um, and quite frankly, sometimes it's at home. Sometimes it's, I'm, you know, let's say I'm coming out of Senegal in Africa, a country in Africa or South Africa. It's taking time for quiet before I come home so that I can really hear what has been gifted to me or told to me by women and men who shared their lives with me, invited me into their homes, but told me of their struggles and their hardships and where they're maybe getting ahead uh, in, in getting their kids in education. But I have to try and take that all in. So I still in quiet myself, I'll often take a day between a developing world trip and coming home so that I can gather all of that and then bring that back into the foundation to know how I want to guide strategies and leaders and issues inside the foundation. I love that sense of micro steps again in Mm. so much of what you say, um, including um, how you've learned over the years that if you are coming back from a long trip and you are tired, or if Bill's coming back from a long trip and he's tired, that you maybe need to postpone tough conversations. And to me, that was a micro step, Mm. but so key uh, because it was something you observed and you learned from. Mm. So how did that uh, insight come to you? 
Yeah, I would say we've only been practicing that insight, quite frankly, the last six years in our marriage, and it has benefited us enormously. And I think we started to see that when there was tension in the marriage, even over just small things that shouldn't be hard, it was when one or both of us were tired. Yes. And so, and you know, in your partner's face, you often see the tiredness, whether they tell you or not, but you have a sense of it. But again, these small things, these small insights that can have such a a big impact on, on a relationship. Absolutely. Like we've learned at night, we like to watch something now, even if it's a 30-minute show before bed, something that's just relaxing. Sometimes we call it mind candy, <laughs> just to take our mind off the day, right, and have this funny little thing that we're doing. And, you know, so many of the new things like, you know, Netflix just make that easy. So this whole issue of stress and burnout is so key now for so many of us. I mean, the World Health Organization mm. recently recognized burnout <clears throat> as a real syndrome, mm at work that affects health and affects decision-making. So you, you've been very deliberate and conscious in writing about how you deal with your stress and burnout. So I'd like to walk through some of these tools because I think they can help so many people, mm. like how you spend the first hour of your morning. Mm. That's fundamental for me, for setting the day. And I try to go to bed early. I'm always thinking about my bedtime because the earlier I go to bed, the earlier I can get up in the morning. And I love that first hour in the morning. And then I love that during a busy work day, you've said you sometimes take 15 minute breaks to catch your breath. Definitely. We used to book both Bill and me back to back to back in meetings at the foundation, like literally on the hour back to back. And I finally learned that we needed to have 10 or 15 minute breaks in between just to kind of regroup and catch our breath. And our offices are literally uh, attached to one another, but often we won't even talk during that time. We each need time to decompress. And then we'll regather for two minutes before we go into the next meeting. And it has not only helped me, it's helped him. And quite frankly, it's helped all the leaders in yes. the foundation because half a dozen of them might be in all those meetings with us back to back. And it just means everybody has a chance to regroup and show up their best for the next meeting and pay attention to that next topic and be focused. And now, as you are prioritizing the cause of women and girls around the world mm. and, and uh, dealing with so many institutional barriers and historic barriers, I also love the fact that you're addressing in the book the inner barriers. Mm. Um, you talked, for example, about your own perfectionism. Definitely. And how it comes from a desperate need to not disappoint others. And you recently said that you had an epiphany that my best self was not my most polished self. Mm. And uh, this is so important. And very often I find as we are legitimately focusing on institutional barriers, we are neglecting the inner barriers. So I call um, mm. that perfectionism the obnoxious roommate living mm. in my head. <laughs> And I've noticed that it's the most depleting thing I do. Like, I, mm. I can finish this conversation, which has been, for me, incredibly recharging, actually. Mm. Didn't Good. feel like any effort at all. Definitely. But if my obnoxious roommate starts going, it mm. would be, oh, you forgot to ask Melinda this. And the way you phrased that question wasn't right. Uh. And it will be doing this judging, doubting. Yep. And I, I, I can actually be exhausted <laughs> yeah. without having done anything. Right, five minutes from now. Yes, yeah. just by listening to that voice. So how have you dealt with your perfectionism? 
I really had to look at it and systematically just tear it down. It was showing up in so many places in my life. My staff would tell you that I was, talk about obnoxious, obnoxious getting ready for a speech or a event I had, you know, pinging them. What about this number? What about that? What about this? You know, things that, okay, maybe I don't remember the perfect statistic that's going to back up my point. But guess what? If I show up as myself with my authentic self, with what I do know, that's going to be just as effective. And I think if we start to drop our perfectionism, particularly, I will say, I I notice a lot of women that have this. Men have it too. They don't talk about it as much. But if we start to drop that and we start to talk about it, we free each other from having, from also having those doubts and that perfectionism. So um, I work on it. I try and work on it literally every day. And when that thought comes up, I go, hmm, you're doing that again. You're about to go reach for a statistic. And guess what? You don't need to. Or yesterday is a perfect example. Busy business day yesterday in New York. I could have spent an extra, you know, 10 minutes uh, exercising and doing what I loved or spent that 10 minutes doing my hair. I went everywhere yesterday with straight hair. And I grew up in (laughs) Dallas. Believe me, you don't go anywhere with straight hair. (laughs) So, you know, and guess what? I think I was better off because I worked on my health for 10 more minutes instead of working on my hair. (laughs) And so I love you're even seeing celebrities now post how long it takes to get ready for an event or, you know, somewhere they have to show up. They're expected to look good. I think we need to look at what society is also telling women, Mm -hmm. you know, where we have to have it all together. We have to be smart and we have to look good. No, we get to be ourselves, whatever that's like on any given day. Well, we started a repeats movement, encouraging women to feel completely free to repeat an outfit. Because that's another, you know, in public situations, that's another pressure on women. Nobody notices even what a man is wearing. (laughs) So I've started a whole campaign. I post on my Instagram, my wearing the same thing. I mean, not not just in everyday situations, but big occasions. And uh, freeing ourselves from these burdens. Mm -hmm. So I would love to end by a theme in your book which you've expressed in many different ways. Here are just a couple of quotes. Mm -hmm. One is, as people talk to each other, you said they're getting better. Mm -hmm. And then you define better. Mm -hmm. You say, I don't mean human beings getting better at science and technology. I mean human beings getting better at being human. Mm -hmm. And I'd love you to say a little more about that, especially in relation to also what you've written about goodness, you know, that you have to keep touching those places of goodness to know how to act in the world Mm. and daring to bring the word love Mm. in the context of public policy. So Mm. goodness, love, becoming more human, this is a constant theme. Mm. So I would love to end by you telling us what that means to you and how it's evolving through your life. I think to be fully human means that we get to show up as our full selves. And none of us are the same. We're all unique. We all have talents. We all have skills to bring to bear. We all have unique thoughts. But a lot of times, because of societal issues, uh, men and women, but particularly women that hold women down, we don't get to express our full potential or our full full views. And so I find that when we connect in these human-to-human connections, we often feel more safe 
expressing our full selves. And so if we can do that and we can even love each other through those very difficult moments and we can be our authentic selves, then we can start to bring that out more in the world to a larger group. And and quite frankly, what I find, you know, because one of the, the situations I'm in now is to try and call on world leaders to put up resources or change policies on behalf of gender, for instance, around the world. If I can connect with that leader on a human-to-human basis, he or she is much more likely to tell me why they are for or not for this effort, and they're much more likely to sign up. And so we often forget that. I think we put people on pedestals and we think, oh, we're not the same. He or she have achieved that position. And, you know, no, we're all human beings that care about that human connection. And when we can remember that, you touch that essential goodness in everyone. And that is when you move the world forward for the better. And you start to open up ways, create space, create ways of being that allows everybody to thrive, even those people who've been marginalized on the edges of society. Thank you so much, Melinda, both for all you are doing in the world, but also for who you are and who you are becoming. Thank you. Thanks, Ariana. Thanks for this great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Many thanks to Melinda Gates. This episode of the Thrive Global podcast is presented by Audible, whose sleep collection was designed to help you get the rest you deserve. For a wealth of sleep stories, meditations, and other incredible wellness content, check out Audible Plus, which also features thousands of audiobooks, podcasts, and Audible originals. And stay tuned for my new podcast, What I Learned with Ariana Huffington, featuring some of the most interesting people sharing the life lessons they learned over the course of this tumultuous past year. Thanks for listening.